Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the One Step Better podcast. I am Mike Schaefer, and with me today is Mrs. Shelby Betts. Thanks, Shelby, hey, hey. for joining us. We are going to talk about a topic that is something that we are constantly trying to figure out, constantly trying to evolve, and hopefully get some things right. And along the way, we're going to get some things wrong. But it is crucial to get this right and have a good plan before you start selling services, because what we're going to talk about today is uh, just kind of some sales 101 groundwork, um, how, to, how we want to do B2B or business-to-business sales. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about our strategy, some things that we've learned along the way, and hopefully encourage our listeners uh, to develop some different techniques and some, some uh, concepts around how they can do that in their own businesses. And so if you are a... Uh, leader of a B2B sales organization. Hopefully this conversation will be helpful to you. Um, we may touch a little bit about B2C. Um, who knows where this goes? Yeah, we'll um, see. But primarily we're going to talk about for, talk about this from a B2B environment. Uh, but before we jump into that content, we always have to get started with a little, something a little bit lighter to help uh, break the ice. And so today's question, Ms. Shelby, what do you buy way more than other people? lingerie this has just got awkward yep but it's not for me so if you are a millennial and your friends are getting married which actually most of my friends thankfully now are having kids which is worse i'm buying more car seats <laughs> for baby showers than i've ever done but um yeah so i think if you were to look at my amazon history they'd be like why does this girl buy so much lingerie which fun fact not for me but there's this new thing That's that girls gift. do called lingerie showers which is good for the men if you're getting married hey you can ask your wife you know, you're soon to be like, you, is your friend, are your friends throwing you a lingerie shower? We may want to scrap this and yeah. I'll, I'll re-answer the question. It's the first thing that came to mind. But uh, yeah, a lot of girls now do lingerie showers This is for one of those friends. things that you just answered off like top of your mind and then you get into this and it's like, like man, man, what I am I? I shouldn't have done that. So we is can this maybe, too vulnerable? Yeah, maybe we need a good one. But yeah, millennials do this. They do lingerie showers for their friends, which I think is awesome. It's fun uh, for people getting married. But I feel like I end up I'm like invited to, I feel like I'm invited to a bridal shower and a lingerie shower. You have way like, too many friends. It's a great problem to have. Yeah. And now you're going to have to buy way too many car seats and cribs and yeah, pacifiers. Yeah. You know, and you make the mistake, especially if your friends are in the same core group. You know, if you buy a kind of expensive gift for one, for like a wedding shower, or bridal shower, or baby, then you're like, oh man, I've now got to match that for all my friends. So if you're buying for showers, pick like a $40 limit. <laughs> you know, this is, this is a, this is me being vulnerable here, vulnerable, vulnerable here. When you say that my analytics brain first thinks about, is there a way to track the type of lingerie you buy <laughs> to a later purchase of a car seat <laughs> and see maybe there's some type of connection here? Possibly. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. What do you uh, buy way more than most people? Food, probably food. We go out oh, to eat way too though. much. It's everybody. It's everybody. And I'm saying that we do that more than most people. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, we do, uh, we use an every dollar budgeting app yeah. that, and, and so we, I track every dollar that we spend and, uh, um, you can go back and look at how much you spend in different categories over the course of the year. And I'm not even going to tell you how much that we spent last year yeah. on dining out. Yeah. It's um, a significant budget item for so many people. That's why most insane. people don't track it. Cause they're like, I don't want to know I what don't, this category I don't want to know. Um, <laughs> you know, we, it's, it's insane. It's yeah. insane. We go out to eat in a, a good bit. Uh, but to be fair, I got four kids. And so going out to yeah. eat for us is not like, you know, $20. Cheap. Yeah. 
at Chili's. No longer do you get to get cocktails because you're spend, you know, that's on kids' meals now. Kids' meals, in it, yeah. 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 Does and everyone that, get water? My parents made us do that. No, not so much. They okay. like to get the fancy drinks yeah. at wherever they go. Yeah, and so it's them? like um, every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Um, that's the, I think you can get like, it's like a blue, it looks like a cocktail almost, some type of island drink, but it has like yeah. Swedish fish in it. I think, uh, and that's is that one at Chili's? of, I think it is at Chili's, um, Hudson and Landon really like that one. That's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, any type of, if you have a restaurant and you have like fancy, kids. weird kid drinks, yeah, let me know. Cause my kids will definitely hit that up. Yeah. That's actually a good just idea anyway. So if you're one of our restaurant owners, you should probably make a little Kids cocktail. Well, that's probably not the right marketing. <laughs> kids specialty drinks. Mocktails for kids. Yeah. yeah you know, Belly Acres here in town, they used to serve kids meals on Frisbees. Yeah. That's and awesome. that was super cool because you would they'd eat their food. Do I don't think so. It's been, a, it's been a little bit since I've been there, but uh, I don't think they, last, last time I went, they didn't. Mm, so that may have been a one-time thing. Yeah. That's but, cool. You know, you can, you can definitely, if you have some creative if you want to market a restaurant towards kids <laughs> um, and you have some creative kid stuff, then Swedish fish, nerds, and my fit, fancy my glasses. Will. Oh, and crazy straws. Man, those were crazy awesome. Crazy straws are awesome. That's what they need to do. Yeah. You need crazy you straws. You ever have the crazy straws that were glasses? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those were cool. Those were cool. Anyway. Those need to come back. So that's a great um, that's a great way to try to bring in my family is have crazy kids stuff at your restaurant. <laughs> um, you know, at some point in time, somebody made the decision, hey, you know what? How can I get customers? It's by offering crazy kids stuff. And it, right. sometimes it works. And so today we're going to kind of talk a little bit about that, um, ways in which we can start to attract customers, things that we need to do to find customers. But I want to start this by saying that when we talk about customers here at Patrick Accounting and Works, what we're generally talking about is not just any customer. We don't believe that everybody mm -hmm. is a potential customer of ours. We're really talking about the ideal customer. This is people that not only do you want to buy business or buy services from us, we actually want to sell you services. Yep. Um, we, we oftentimes run into situations where you and your team are meeting with different prospects and it's identified at some point in that process that this is not a person that we want to work with. And that's not necessarily like because you're a bad person or because it's right. just that it's not the right fit. Right. Absolutely. And we're not the right fit for everybody. And so I want you to talk a little bit about whenever you are starting the process of, I want, I know that I have a, a, a service-based business or whatever it may be that I'm going to sell to other businesses. What are you starting with to define what that sales process needs to look like and what customers you're going to go reach? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're a sales leader, you know, you're kind of in an impossible predicament sometimes because your responsibility is to generate revenue. And so you've got a sales goal, you've got to meet it. And so in some ways you don't want to be too picky and too selective because ultimately, you know, if you don't deliver, I mean, it's production only. If you don't deliver the results that your, you know, your owners or your bosses are looking for, you're just not going to get paid and you're probably going to get fired. So <laughs> in some ways you don't want to be too picky, but I do think it's important to think through like as you're developing your go-to-market strategy, um, one of the first things that you need to determine is who is my ideal customer or my ideal client profile and why do I think it is what it is um, you can attack that in a couple of ways like most people will start with a, you know demographically like you can look at your value props like what are my value props how can I go find people that kind of fit into that value prop you can start demographically there's a lot of ways to just dice that pie um, but your sales strategy has got to include a very solid idea of who your ideal client is when you find a potential customer 
that isn't you know 100 this is an ideal fit i, I definitely want to do business with them mm -hmm. but it's like an 80 percent fit at what point do you start to say you know what you're not ideal therefore we can't work together is, are you shooting for it has to be perfect every single time no definitely not which probably operations is like well i wish you would listen <laughs> no i i think um you know, we talked about this pr prior to this conversation, but when I, I say ideal client profile, I'm thinking through like you've thought through what your service offering is best suited for. You've thought about your profitability, how you actually help clients. Um, you've thought about your demographic profile and your psychographic profile. And if they are checking off 80% of what you would classify as your ideal client profile, unless you're just busting at the seams, like you can't onboard anybody, I don't know why you wouldn't take that client on because um, as you continue to develop your go-to-market strategy, you do realize your ideal client profile changes. And so, yeah, they may check off 80%. Um, and if they're not the 20, like I said, if you're not like, you know, if your operations team can't handle anything else, yeah, you should probably turn that down or Tighten hey, it up a little bit. Absolutely. But I mean, if you're needing to close business, I, I think 80% is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Personally. That's, that's interesting because, you know, the if we only tried to go after people that were 100% fit. Yeah. At some point, like you're not going to find that person if you got super detailed in your diff your analysis of the, all right, this is what we're going to say mm -hmm. is an like my ideal customer may be they live on, you know, or somebody that that works on this block sure. that is an income earner of X dollars or more and right. they also have this type of car like you're just going to start to, you know, narrow yourself out so much that definitely you're, you're getting away from ideal at that point mm -hmm. to perfect and it's not the perfect customer it is the ideal customer these are the people that we like to work with yeah sales leaders can get too analytical on that like you know you've got to understand if you have good outside sell or boots to ground sales people that are out there you know running the market they may be walking into emerging markets you don't even know exist that you could potentially be servicing well so if you have a kind of boots to the ground salesperson telling you i can really build some business in a particular vertical on a particular street within a particular networking you know group try one or two of those and if it's really working then you could actually develop or kind of even tailor and tweak your ideal client because i just think you know if we're going to say okay we're only going to service you know restaurants or we're only going to service this type of client within these parameters and no one else well what happens when that industry drop, dies up you yeah. know pan the pandemic showed us that like if you weren't diversified as a b2b business then your, your business probably really suffered um, i think the the value and the good thing that happened out of the pandemic for most businesses especially in B2B, is you probably identified some areas that you could move into that you wouldn't have known about if we weren't forced to change the way we do business. Yeah. So a sales team has to, you have got to constantly be refining and tailoring that ideal client. So you lead our team here and we have, uh, you know, what the six or seven people or so on our sales team in all different areas. Yeah. How, what are some things that you do to make sure that your ears to the ground and you're actually getting that type of feedback to know, all right, this is what's working. This is what's not working. Maybe we need to pivot here. Maybe there's an opportunity there. Yeah. So that's a great question. First for, you know, we have, so I guess probably a, a bigger conversation thing about go to market strategy. If you're in B2B sales and you're selling services, um, the 
sales positions you choose to have are pretty important. Are you going to choose an outside sales model only and only have outside sales team? Do you want to have appointment setters who are getting to the discovery call? You kind of need to decide what the type of salesperson you want to have. Um, a B2B selling products, you just need it. You probably need an inside sales team that's just on the f banging out phones. So like, you kind of have to make your decision on that. But as far as making sure we're dialed into our ideal client profile, we're asking questions all the time about what's working. Um, if we're not generating appointments, is it because we've missed the mark on the ideal client or we're not working? Um, if we're missing the mark on bringing new business in, like if we're constantly, there's a vertical I've been pursuing personally because I think we would do a good job servicing it. But every owner I talk to, the only care they have and concern is price. And, you know, we're not the cheapest system in the market. We're not going to be. We're not trying to be, you know, the Walmart of this business or Dollar General or the dollar store. In my opinion, they can go buy from ADP if that's yeah. what you want. Yeah. Um, and so I thought this vertical would be really good because we could service it, but man, their only concerns price. And so I just, we got to move on because I'm not going to have a pricing. I'm not going to get through the whole entire sales process and then just get um, ground into the ground yeah. <laughs> uh, because the price isn't right. Um, so I think you, you just have to recognize where your obstacles are. If you can't set appointments, but you think it's your ideal client, is your sales strategy off or is your ideal client off? You know, if you're hitting a really, like you're just not closing the business you should, is it your sales team or is it your, you know, your offering? You make a good point because if, if our people are out chasing appointments for customers that we know are not going to ever be buyers mm -hmm. simply because it's a demographic or it's a... Mm -hmm. an industry or whatever it is that is not a fit for who we are, what we do, then we're wasting our time chasing that. Yep. And so as you're, as you're actually closing new business or maybe looking to go into a different industry or different market, how do you, what are some things that you can do to begin to identify, is this going to be a good fit for us? You mentioned a little bit about, you know, we have some different trigger opportunities or, or mm -hmm. psychographics, demographics. What are some of the things that you're actually looking for within those buckets to, to identify what a good client or good customer may be? Yeah, so as a sales team, you're, you're doing this without recognizing you're doing it, but we use the terms a, a ton internally about ideal client profile involves three things. It involves triggers, it involves a, a demographic and a psychographic. Start with the easy one, triggers. There are It's easier to set appointments with people who are already looking for your product or your service. How can I identify when they might be looking? We have a lot of good digital AI tools that are available to us to determine, hey, if this person is typing in this specific stuff in Google, it's probably a good indicator they need my service. Um, and so you kind of need to identify what are your triggers. When would a business owner or a business be looking for your service? Do you work with startups, new businesses, growing and adding locations, adding staff? Is it a role change, like a C-suite change where if your buyer is a CFO and a new CFO, the first thing they're going to do is go look at their budgets and review what's currently being done. That may be your opportunity to introduce your service in a way you couldn't have and these earlier. Are, correct me if I'm wrong. These are events that are happening to a business on the prospect side yes. somewhere in their organization. Yes. It's not something that we necessarily control. No. But if we're unaware of those events that could 
then lead to an appointment with a potential buyer, then we're missing opportunities there. Yes. So you think in sales, it's a numbers game. So you want to take the path of least resistance. It's easier for me to set an appointment with someone who has already identified they have a need. And then all I need to do is convince them they need me. And so if I've identified they're an ideal fit for me and I know they need my product, it's an easy sell. Um, And so a sales manager or sales leader should look at that. What's the easiest way for me to get in front of my buyers? Well, the first step to overcome is do they know about you? But more importantly, do they have a need for your services? I don't want to talk to somebody who is going to look at services in five years. I want to talk to one who's looking to make a decision today. And so um, you know the triggers. You may not have voiced them out loud, but I'll give you an example of some of ours to help. Um, A business that is in growth mode, fast growing, they are probably hiring and firing and they may be experiencing turnover. That tends to be a trigger. Um, Hitting a certain like compliance tiers. So when they add 50 staff, they have new ACA regulations they may not know about. I want to be the first person that calls them and said, hey, I, I saw you made your 45th hire. Do you know about ACA? Do you have a good benefit broker? I'd love to make an introduction there. would love to make sure you know about compliance. Because we always say, you know, we help clients get one step better every day. Well, I want to do that for my prospect. I want to identify areas they may not know about to keep them out of the ditches. And hopefully that leads to, you know, greater sales for us. So Triggers would be, you know, are they fast growing or a C-suite change? Has there been an ownership change? Are they adding a new location? What, what are the what are the kind of potential pain points in a business that might trigger their need for your service? And what are you, how are you finding customers that are hitting those triggers? Yeah, so that's where your sales team, I think in this day and age, you have to be a master networker and you have to be kind of like a sleuth on the internet. (laughs) You know, I mean, your news articles are a good source. Like your local newspaper is telling you when people are having these issues and pain points and problems. A good salesperson is reading the news every day to try to find, oh, that one business that just opened up and they need me first. Or they're in a networking group or a, you know, strategic partnership group that is that knows when that business opens up first so I think those are kind of the ways you know that is through your news and and through your partners Um, you can't know everything and so you need people strategically in your business community or even if you're not a local business kind of in your network that can identify opportunities for you and that trust you to take care of their clients that's when you really start winning when your referral partners are identifying triggers for your potential client and they're calling you and saying, hey, can you meet with my client? And well, you now you already have passed the first test, which is, will your prospect trust you? And you can't do that without having a clear understanding of what that ideal customer profile looks like. Sure. So if, if you know, you mentioned one of ours is if you're a growing business and you're adding a new location or whatever it may be. Sure. We have a defined, we have defined that it's in our playbook to say, this is yep. a, this is an, an, an opportunity because of that event that means that we need to talk to these people about services. Yeah. I mean, if you're an outsourced service provider, um, do you take over a potential key hire? Like, okay, if you're listening to this and you're an IT service provider, when a mid-sized business is hiring for an IT guy and you offer services that potentially could replace an IT person, you probably need to be looking at job boards yeah. because that could kind of tell you, oh man, they're looking to make an IT hire. They may have a need for my service. Now I just need to convince them about why outsourcing might make more sense than hiring in-house. And that's just, that's one event or one trigger. One, one trigger, yeah, One absolutely. thing that could be there. It's not that that one trigger 
causes every domino to fall. No. But it's mm -hmm. one of many that's in your tool bag. So you can actually start to identify, all right, this is an ideal customer. Yeah. They have an event. So when you pick up the phone and make a phone call or send an email or yeah, reach absolutely. out via a networking person, whoever it may be, or uh, however you're, you're getting in front of them, that conversation is now a little bit more warm. It's, uh, it's not just, Hey, you don't know me. I don't know you. I want <laughs> yeah. to win your business. Buy from me now. Yeah. I'll tell you, I, um, I have someone who's trying to earn our business today and, um, she caught me at a networking event. I love talking to people. So I was excited for her. She's in a new role. She's telling me what she does. And she says, you know, do you know about my business? And I, you know, then I was like, girl, great. Here, here we go. Uh, no, I don't. And she's like, well, we do this and we do this and we do this. And I was like, well, great. That's not what I do. That's not in my department. Like I don't make those decisions for our company, but thank you so much for telling me, you know, um, well, she's now sending me an email every week for that stuff. Yeah. Well, I've already told her I'm not the decision maker. And also we don't have a need for that. So it's like, that's kind of frustrating. So yeah. that sales process, if you're just having your sales team, like bang out emails that are, here's who I am, here's what I do. Here's how I help. Like, that's just not working today. Like you have got to tell a better story. So I think it's more compelling when I see, wow, I saw you just got promoted. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm thrilled that you're promoted. Can I take you to lunch? I'd love to learn from someone like you. That's personalized. Now that's not a, I'm not going to sell. Let's be clear as sales leaders and professional salespeople, you're not going to that lunch <laughs> to sell them your product and service. You are going to that lunch to do exactly what you said you wanted to do, which is congratulate them for their new business. Mm -hmm and identify what they're going to do. You exchange that business card, they are going to, when they have a need for you, they're going to find and call you. And also the, so what you get from developing that trust. is the, even though you're not, your, your goal here isn't to sell them, right? you are going to qualify them because you're yes. going to learn stuff about them. Absolutely. The qualifying process isn't just, all right, I want you to fill out this questionnaire and then we can decide. Mm -hmm. It's, I get to know you because I know what I'm looking for. And we can find where there may be some alignment or we may find, you know what, this is never going to be a thing. And it, it really, and it's not just like, oh, well, this is a waste of time. That's not what it is at all. But you do, because you, like you mentioned, salespeople are always doing this. It's not even cognizant, they're not even cognizant that this is happening, but their mind is always thinking about, all right, is there a potential connection here? Yes. Is there a fit? And I'll, we're kind of straying from go to market strategy here, but this is m probably more into equipping your sales team. But uh, <sighs> When it comes to equipping your sales team, I think it's important that you know your buyer very, very well as a sales leader. And then you need to equip every single person on your sales team and your marketing team to know your buyer in and out. Because if they know your buyer, they can begin to think like your buyer. And that's how you really do sales well, is that you understand your buyer, you treat them like a buyer, and you treat them the way that buyer would wanna be treated. If you're working with a small business and you're talking to the owner, your sales strategy needs to include, if I was this owner, what would I care about? You're not there to sell your product. You're there to sell peace of mind to the owner. So you need to think like an owner to do that. So I think it's important that sales leaders are equipping their sales team to think about how their buyer is thinking. What does their buyer care about? Yeah. Not your product, not your service, though you should be able to speak intelligently on that. But you need to really dive into what does the buyer really care about? Is it peace of mind? Is it solving problems? Is it conflict resolution? Like, I think that's more important than knowing every potential, you know, thing about your product and service. You should be doing the opposite. You should really equip your sales team to know your buyer. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we're, we're reading this book now 
Uh, was it They Ask, We they, Answer? Is yeah, that the name they, of it? they Ask, You Answer you by answer. Marcus Sheridan. Um, one of the things that I found very interesting about that book is he really is getting to the point of you got to be an expert on your buyer. Yep. What are they looking for? How are they looking for it? What are the questions that they're asking and producing a lot of it's, you know, it's kind of inbound marketing yep. in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, what, what are you doing to produce content to warm them up, to get them answers, to educate them so that whenever they are equipped to make a decision, then you're kind of leading the, the charge because you're the educator of the group. One of the things that in that book that I thought was um, kind of enlightening is he he ha- he provided a lot of stats about how much time his buyers are doing research on their own oh, sure. before talking to a salesperson at all. Yeah. And it seems it's you know it seems like his research backs us up that with the internet age is of mm-hmm. course people are spending a significant amount of time actually learning about something before they're actually talking to a salesperson. I want to say it was the the average buyer was spending 2 hours on his website. Yep reading blog posts, watching videos, just absorbing content yep. was something and like that. That, that number is probably not absolutely right, but it's, it, was, it was a ridiculously high number that I didn't expect. Yeah. And to, um, you know, to f- flip side of that coin is any sales leader that's reading that book is just thinking, well, Marcus Sheridan is a salesperson who's ditching on salespeople. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just like, crapping on salespeople for lack of a better word and how you need to flip your switch to marketing. I'm like, well, that's convenient because you're a salesperson and you're using your company as a case study, which yeah. is funny, but, um, no doubt. Like his, his whole deal was to, create content and we're reading the book, which is content he created. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. But all that to say, um, your buyers are doing research and the why behind that is trust. It's, I can't, I have been burned before or something has happened or I bought a service or a product they didn't understand well, or they thought they were getting something that wasn't in their engagement letter and now they're frustrated. And I think a part of the reason all of us as buyers are so prone to do research first is because we don't know who to trust. And there are so many potential options and voices out there. You kind of want to narrow that scope before you go talk. I don't want to talk to 50 people. I want to talk to like three. Absolutely. And so I think that's a part of why, like, there's so much research being done and good B2B businesses are going to take steps to answer those questions so that they can get their ideal buyer on their website and then their sales team can take action from there. Um, if you're struggling to know what questions they're asking, go ask your sales team, what what are the top 10 questions that you get in your sales process about your company? Then go answer those questions so that your buyer can see those having that information is actually helping you, even if it's not, I would rather someone tell me, Hey, I could help you, but I'm not the best fit than to go through the whole discovery process, sign the deal, get implemented. And it's not a good fit for my business. I would, I would have even greater trust and I would probably refer people to them yeah. <laughs> if I knew ahead of time that they're not the right fit. Yeah, absolutely. Cause it, it, I do this all the time. I am afraid of making a wrong buying decision. Yeah. The regret that comes with that is is pretty substantial for me. And if if I can trust you and I know that it, it, I know that if I've done my research and know, you know, kind of the different options and then I can rely on a salesperson or, you know, somebody who I trust to get that extra, you know, that last 10% or 50, you know, whatever it is, to close the gap between what I think I know and what I may not know yet. Yes. Then I'm hooked. You you have me at that point mm-hmm. um, all day long. I did this with, uh, um, I bought a new um, pool cleaner. And I, if you've never bought a pool cleaner, 
oh my goodness, it is ridiculous. There's 800 billion different kinds. And so I went down, like the, I go to Blue A Pool Supplies in Bartlett. I'm completely okay talking about them because they have been fantastic. That's awesome. And in talking with them about this, they said, yeah, that's because there's like three manufacturers of these that produce a bunch of different lines that call yeah. them all different, but they're exactly the same. Really? It's just simply this company carries this one, so it has to be called X, but that company carries that one, so it has to be called Y. Mm, same but product. it's the same exact product. And so knowing that and helping me narrow it down to where then it's my decision, sure. which one of these three I'm going to pick or whatever. And I felt equipped enough to know that, you know what, I'm going to pick one of these and I'll be good. And and then I did. And it was perfectly fine, which is uh, a lot more reassuring than, man, I, I bought this, but should I have done something different? Or, you know, what else was there out there? Which I don't like making decisions like that. No. Yeah. And I think B2B businesses can learn for how B2C, in some ways, how B2C is like leveraging and marketing and selling their products. Um, I was thinking you're talking about pools and my mind jumped to backpacking equipment. My husband and I love mm -hmm. to backpack. And, you know, if you don't get the weight of your pack right, <laughs> like you are going to be, be miserable. miserable on the trail. So, I mean, man, every single time we make a purchase for something, I'm looking at the specs I really want to know the specs of like I, I need the comparison and I love the companies that give me the comparisons on their products of okay like here's an honest review of I'm thinking about like tents like REI is amazing and they had like six different tent options but I could go through all of the specifications yeah. <laughs> what's stopping a B2B company from doing that with their competitors and even pointing out hey their competitor may do something that we don't do great, that company can that needs that can go work with my competitor rather than me work with them and they hate me yeah. <laughs> and give me a bad review and tell how badly they are, you know, like how bad we are to all of their friends. I would much rather scope that in and narrow it down. So I think B2B is a bit behind in terms of how we think about our buyer uh, from B2C, but I think we can adapt some of those B2C principles of like the comparisons. It's and just being questions. honest. Yeah. Like and because and you, you have to be able to say, like we said at the very beginning of this, not everybody is going to be a customer of sure. mine. Um, and, and it's going to be because I don't want to work with them, not because they don't want to work with me. Mm -hmm. And if I can clearly define that on the front end, it's going to save me a lot of time chasing things that, that don't are matter. ultimately going to you know, end in failure. Yep. So we've talked about triggers. We talked a bit about um, demographic speaks for itself. If you're a sales leader, um, you really know your value props. And so like if you sell in a vertical, go pursue that vertical all across the world. If your value prop is your local business, then restrict your sales team, give them zip codes. Like that's something we, we kind of do it a little bit is like, okay, like we lose our market name, even though we can service people out in California, we do lose a little bit of that name recognition when we're flying across the country to sure. sell something. So why don't we try like, you know, Kentucky, <laughs> you know, little things so like a that. Closer. So demographics, fairly simple, but I think as a sales leader, if you don't iron that out for your team, you will have them working unnecessarily hard for you to say, oh, we can't do that. So go ahead and outline it for them because to be unclear is to be unkind. Um, and as a sales team and a leader, you want your sales team to make as much money as possible as so if they just want to get after it, but give them some parameters, like it's better to do that. I think of like, you know, the dartboard, if we have our ideal client as the target, man, if they hit the 10 or the 20, I'm still happy with that. Yeah. But you've got to define the dartboard for them. If you don't, they're going to make it up themselves. Yeah. Because they're going to, they still need to operate within some type of boundaries. And if you Absolutely. don't clearly define that, they're going to create those. Yep. And that's where, you know, we talk about this a lot, where you have the potential for misalignment between what you think 
uh, you should do and what I think you should do. Yeah. Ultimately, somebody's going to win out in that conversation. Yep. <laughs> uh, we mentioned the other is, is psychographic. I don't know that anyone else uses this term other than our sales team. <laughs> but um, in my mind, if you're a sales leader, all you are thinking about is who have you really loved in the sales process? Who have who does your operations team really love? Um, we've said this, but we love the right type of needy. So a client that is smart, but you like truly sees us as an advisor to them. Like we love those people because we want to help them because they respect us. They are good at what they do and we can really help them. The person that sees us as a vendor, not a partner. Um, ultimately that does eventually cause friction. And so if I can identify that on the sales end and know, Hey, they're really going to see us as a vendor, not as a true partner. This is not necessarily a great fit. If we're killing it in sales that month, maybe I turn that business down, you know, okay. Yeah. If we're hungry and we, need to get a deal in the door. That's a different story. But I think it's helpful to recognize those pain points ahead of time and kind of educate your operations team a little bit as you're making that handoff. If you're service-based of, hey, this isn't, I'm afraid this is not necessarily our ideal fit and here's why. So then you give your operations team kind of some parameters for, or just some, you know, warnings to know, hey, this may not be the best fit. Yeah. And, and with that, it requires to remove the silos between sales, operations, marketing, yes. you know, all the different departments within your organization. You have to be transparent. We need to talk enough. about that another day because that is a huge, huge potential obstacle for businesses. It's something that silos. whenever operations and sales, and we talked, I think you We've and I did We've done this before, this, yep. Where there's clear, transparent conversations back and forth about what's working well, what's not working well, what you're finding in the market and what you're not finding in the market. Then there could be a sit down and, all right, let's figure this out. And, and are, do we need to pivot or is there something wrong with operations or something wrong with sales? Like, where, how do we need to fix this? Or, or, yeah. or is this just simply this is the tension that we need to manage? Therefore, let's put in some different ways to manage that to make that, you know, that tension in-house and not external as much as possible. Definitely. Got to be able to communicate. Yeah. I'm switching gears a bit. As a COO, you know, you're a COO of a business. So I'm t thinking about C-suite here. How can sales leaders um, make sure they are on the right track as far as their sales strategy from the people that are looking at the numbers and asking the questions? Are we generating the revenue we want? Are we as profitable as we want to be? How can salespeople make, how can sales teams make sure they're aligned with the ultimate goals and mission and vision of the company? I think it starts with having a clear understanding on the front end of what those expectations are. You know, we talk a lot about having, uh, whether it's a KRA or whatever it may be, or we have written expectations to say, if you're a sales leader or a salesperson, this is how much business we expect you to close. And if that's not in place, then a salesperson, regardless if you're the leader or outside sales, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If that expectation is not written down, communicated clearly on the front end, you will never be happy, nor will you ever be successful there. Because... And you've seen this in different sales organizations. The second that you close, maybe your goal is 100K and you close 100K, what's the next year's goal? It's 120, 150, keep yeah. going up and up and up and up. That's right. And maybe that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, except it can be sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. So having those expect expectations set clearly on the front end, I think removes a lot of that. Yep. Now, from there, what, if that is done, then as the, the best thing you can do as a salesperson or a sales leader is know where you are all the time. Yeah. Keep track of your stuff. Because if you're surprised whenever I may come to you and say, hey, Shelby, 
you know, you you were expected to close twenty billion dollars this year, right? And you're at five billion, and that's news to you, right? That tells me that you have you're completely checked out, not plugged in, and don't know what's going on. Yep. Um, and so you have to you have to be on top of your numbers yourself, and most salespeople I think are, um, if you know if you're worth your worth your weight in salt, you know then you know those things, but uh, that should never be a surprise to you. Yep. Um, and then ask a bunch of questions, right? Hey, this didn't work out. Why didn't it work out? Or this went really well. What were some of the things that did work really well? If you can become, and this is true for a salesperson or really any any anybody that has a job. If you can become a person who asks a bunch of questions in a way that I'm, I really do want to learn, you're going to be seen as somebody who is valuable. Right. Oh. Yeah. Um, Kevin and I are debating this a bit. Like, is the CPA, will that be use, useless in 10 years or 15 years? Like the just the credentialing. Yeah. <laughs> we keep talking about this because, you know, he's on the side of um, if you have five years of experience in tax today, you are just as useful as someone who has 35 because the tax code changed five years ago. Does the CPA or credentialing matter? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, back to curiosity, like if you are the type of person that is going to go read the news, go read the articles, stay up to date on your industry and then ask questions about your ideal client profile, you're probably further along the road than someone who's spent their lifetime studying it just because the world changes so fast. Like your ideal client could change in a heartbeat. And if you're not aware of the market and the pulse of your business community, you may get out of touch with your buyer very quickly. And we saw this a little bit when COVID started to hit. And, you know, the, the thing that I love about small business is their nimble ability to adjust and mm-hmm. conquer, adjust and conquer, adjust and conquer. And that had to happen during COVID because there was a lot of people that, you know, if, if they didn't, then they were gone. And, you know, unfortunately, there was a lot of small businesses that are gone. Yeah. Sometimes that was because they didn't adjust and they needed to. And other times it's just unfortunate series of events. Um, but with that, you, you have to be able to, to be nimble. You have to be able to pivot when pivot needs to happen. And small businesses are better positioned to do that than definitely, you know, larger organizations. Um, but it's still just as important. Yeah. Well, Shelby, I, I feel like we could keep going and probably break this up into two podcasts. Yeah, definitely. Honestly, because there's a lot of stuff that I have written on my sheet that we didn't even get to today. But I imagine that we're coming up on uh, on time pretty hard. Uh, and so uh, maybe we'll continue this uh, at a later date. Yeah, this is a conversation that I'm curious if our listeners, if you're a sales leader and you have some dialogue around go-to-market strategy, your ideal client profile, or how you equip your sales team, I would love to hear from you. Yeah, <laughs> especially if you're in the B2B, if you're in the B2B yeah. world. What are I you just, doing that's working? Anything that you could share yeah. is super helpful because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of content out there you know, other than the fluff of I'm trying to sell a book, so let me write something Correct. Down. There's not a ton of content out there that is really r- around this topic unless you are a technology firm that's promising to do all of this work for your sales team. <laughs> yeah. yeah no you know, like, oh, I data entry and list building tools. Like, man, they got all the content in the world about the perfect strategy. Yeah. And then they But nobody's really talking about well, how do you build a list or that's what list right. should I even be looking for? Yeah. It's, what are the parameters nice. around my data? Not just I need data, yeah. but... I always talk about it, it, you know, the questions that we get are how can I do something versus how should I do something? I so much more prefer the how should I uh, versus the how can. I can tell you how to do something all day long, but you may not, may not should do that. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Which is, I know, bad, bad grammar. (laughs) But anyway.
Well, thank you guys for listening. Really appreciate it. As Shelby said, if you have some insight into this or things that are working for you guys, uh, we would love to hear from you. Make sure you leave a comment. Uh, send us an email uh, to one step better at patrickaccounting.com um, and, and just let us know. And if you want have some questions about maybe some of the things that we are doing, we're an open book. We'd be glad to share those things with you. Um, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of resources in trying to develop this in a way that works. And for the most part, we're pretty we're pretty uh, locked in here. And well, uh, we're we refining somebody... it every day, which is what I think. This is why we keep coming back is That's because right. it get, we get better every single day. One step better, baby. That's, That's right. right. Um, so thank you guys for listening. If you need anything from else, let us know. We'll be glad to help. Thanks, Thanks. and have a great day. Bye.